This episode of the Show Me Comic Cast is brought to you by Audible.com. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash showmecomics to start your 30-day free trial and download your free audiobook. Season 1, Episode 14! Oh, hi. You're listening to the Show Me Comic Cast. I'm Tim Pickerel, digital media producer for Show Me Comics. That sure smells good in there. Is somebody spicing up a story with awesome words? Because that's my job. I'm the writer for Show Me Comics, and I bake blogs and bake comic book scripts in the oven of ShowMeComics.com all the time. And hello, Pilgrim. My name is Sam Richardson. I just got off the Mayflower. I'm the artist. And man, I'm getting tired thinking of all the tryptophan that's about to go flowing through my veins. Mmm... All right, so thank you for joining us for this very special gravy-laden episode of Show Me Comics. It's our Thanksgiving special, and what we're going to try to do this uh, episode and this year is give thanks to some of those people in the comic books industry that helped uh, shape us and get us to the point that we're at today in our you know steadily building careers as comic book producers. And so we just like to give thanks by kind of talking about um, people that either influenced us or inspired us or just cheered us along the way, and we're thankful for that. So uh, after Tim, uh, please pass those Brussels sprouts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, thanks. So we're just going to be enjoying a Thanksgiving dinner and talking about comics that made a difference to us and the people behind them. So go ahead. uh, Let's start with Tim. I mean... What are you thankful for on this uh, holiday season? Um, if we're going to go back and talk about things that are comics related, I have to start by being thankful for the creators of the first graphic novel I've ever owned, which was Spawn versus was it Spawn versus Batman or Spawn and Batman? Either way, Todd McFarlane and Frank Miller. So okay, so what was it about that that our audience could kind of take away? Like what? How did that change you? What elements of that? were important that could be recreated by somebody who's trying to make comics now. Somebody who's trying to create comics now. Um, The the one takeaway from it was the first... I mentioned like how on our uh, Dark Knight episode that uh, the Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns was the first time there was like a really dark storyline for Batman, but I had actually read the Spawn versus Batman way before then when I was like 14. So that's the first time I've ever actually owned something that was so dark. And it was like my first exposure to Spawn and a dark Batman. So just the language, there was actually a little bit of foul language in there. So it was like one of the most early adult comics I ever read. And it's also some of the most violent imagery I'd seen, like with the Batarang just buried in Spawn's face and... Uh, storyline wise, I should have given this more thought. I don't remember the story at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably the tryptophan already kicking in, or maybe it's this uh, delicious uh, mead I'm drinking. <laughs> Nothing like a glass of Thanksgiving mead. Sam, do you remember the story for that? Oh, wait, yeah. this is gravy, not mead. <laughs> mm, delicious. Yeah, uh,. I got to say, I, I took away a little bit of a different memory with that. I was hyped when I found out that Todd McFarlane, one of one of my, you know, one of my huge artistic influences growing up, 
was teaming up with one of my all-time favorite writers, Frank Miller. I thought, this is going to be the greatest comic book created ever. I mean, how could it not be? The the best artist at the time with the best writer at the time, the guy that did The Dark Knight Returns, and the guy who you know drew the greatest-selling comic book of all time, Spider-Man number one. And I thought it was a huge letdown. I thought it was like you think Frank you Miller. Overhyped it yeah, I think Frank Miller was kind of like, all right, he sat down in like two hours and just, you know, banged out kind of a, just kind of phoned it in. And then Todd McFarlane took it and, you know, did his, you know, normal job of yeah, awesome art. crap but, all over what I'm thankful for. <laughs> yeah, and I was expecting. Isn't that like, what Thanksgiving's all about? <laughs> I mean, I was expecting this epic, like, 300 page book because it's Spawn and Batman. Like, this should be huge. And instead, I think it was like. 25 pages and the story was like it starts off batman's in a warehouse you have no idea why and there's like these crazy like they're cyborgs he's fight i don't even remember why he was fighting them and he just randomly picks up weapons and says you know i hope that the person that designed these knew what they were doing like batman's not that dumb batman would figure something out here he's not going to go something he thinks might work and then from just that point on like the story just seemed more hokey like Almost like McFarlane was just kind of like, hey, look, you know, I got this storyline I'm pushing in Spawn right now. Can you just throw Batman into it, write a few things, but make it still feel like a Spawn comic. We still want this to feel like an image book. And, oh, you only need two hours to write it? Go ahead. You really <laughs> are <laughs> dumping all of his things. I, I, I remember it. Like, I, I remember the story overall not being much to write home about, but I remember the... Um, Spawn and Batman not getting along very right, well just because right. of the difference. Because Spawn has no problems killing yeah, people. Yeah, the characterization. Looks well, cool. you know, one of the, the things other... here might just be high concept. You know, mm-hmm. the the fact that that's what you know. You might you said at the beginning of the podcast that man, I, I don't even really remember what happened, right, but I remember it was right. awesome. Right. So I think that the high concept was what really inspired you or it's influenced you, which is the team up of. It's not Batman and another DCU person. You know, that's been done a billion times. You got Justice League and stuff, but Batman and, ooh, man, Spawn. He's almost kind of like Batman in some yeah, ways. You know, almost. But that, that's a pretty, you know, high concept of those two teaming up versus, you know, somebody else. Um, and then the other thing about that was probably creator-driven, I'm guessing. Yeah. Was these two working together that's great, you know. Um, yeah, so, I had seen the Spawn yeah. cart. The Spawn cartoon right. was on HBO, by the way. I was going to so. say, it was probably, too, your back reference to both of those guys wasn't as deep as mine at the time. Like you said, your back reference to comics was, eh, you know, this is this kitty stuff. And then this book, you look at it and go, wow, mm-hmm. this is different. With me, I went into it. I knew everything about Frank Miller. I knew everything leading up to it. I knew everything about McFarland. To me, like, like I said, I thought this was going to be a 300 epic book and this is going to be insane. Because I had all these past collections of their works to reference through. So it's like I built it up in my head to be huge, bigger than it should have been. And that's right, why I was right, let down right. where you came in knowing other comic books you looked at were kind of lame. And this right. was the opposite of that. So it seems so much more cool. Well, that's kind of like uh, reminds me of, oh, my God. When I was growing up, I was such a huge Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. Big time. This was when the three real movies were the only movies. And then when I heard we're getting the other three movies, it was like, we're going to get to see Anakin become Darth Vader. <laughs> this is going to be the best thing ever, you know. And I went in, let down, man. Were you let down initially, like from the get-go? No, what, actually what happened was um, I came out of the end of the first movie that came out. Mm-hmm. 
cheering. Yeah, so did I. And about 20 minutes later, I started to be like, you know, I really didn't like Jar Jar Binks. And that was then, my thing. It's like, you know, and slowly I was like, I really didn't like, and it, mm-hmm. by the time it was done, I only had a few touchstone moments that I'm like, I really like. And then when I went into the second movie, I had that letdown feeling and I would, I just wasn't able to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And the third movie was a total stinker in my opinion. So, which is but, why we've always said that we don't acknowledge that those three movies exist. Well, they don't exist. I've uh, completely obliterated them from existence. <laughs> the one thing I will go with back... my ultimate nullifier. The one thing I want to go back to on the uh, Spawn and Batman graphic novel, just because it was mentioned in our Dark Knight Returns one, is that in hindsight, it's funny to see Frank Miller going back to take a stab at Superman even though he's not in the comic at all. He just has Batman dog on Superman. Yes. It's like they're, oh, he's, ar- yeah. he's arguing with Spawn, and he goes, God, you're even dumber than Clark. And Spawn's like, who's Clark? None of your business. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. I do like that. So, All right, well, let's move on. Uh, so we covered Tim. Sam, what to, tell us what you're thankful for in the comic book world. Oh, and while you're at it, could you uh, pass me some of those yum yums? Oh, yeah. Can you move that bowl of green beans out of my way so I can get this over to you? Sure. All right. Uh, all right. So I guess my nom, first one. Nom. My first one, uh, artistically, would be John Romita Sr. Um, man, when we talk about like what other creators could learn from other pros, uh, you got to know your history and you gotta, you've got to study the masters that came before you. And to me, John Romita is the first guy that just... Bam, you know, when I was little, John Romita was the guy. Like, when, when you would see all the promo pictures of Marvel heroes, especially Spider-Man, anything that Spider-Man was licensed to back in the 80s, or at least the early 80s and before that, it was a John Romita-drawn Spider-Man. The way he did the eyes, the way he did the pose, uh, the way that he, uh, whenever he inked, you know, like the way he did shadows, the way he drew female faces, he had a particular way that he would do nose and shadow eyes and, like, like just from the beginning, John Romita was the guy. I was like, okay, that's awesome. But it wasn't until I got a lot older, you know, so even now that I look back at that and really understand like how good that that guy was. Well, can you break that down for our audience? Like, what makes it's, what quantifiable right. techniques does he do that our our audience could try to you know, learn from and replicate? It's keeping it as simple as possible. That's the thing is over the years, comic book art has gone from, you know, John Romita style to, you know, over cross hatching and crazy lines all over the place and trying to get as much detail as you can and then warping them into half anime, half cartoon characters and trying to put as much on the page as you can. And it's like, I mean, I look at John Romita's art and it was all simplified. The face had like the least amount. I mean, it's like the only lines he put on that face were the ones needed to convey that emotion. That's a really good or, point, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, I, I read an interview with him where he talked about one of the reasons that uh, that he did so well at the Spider-Man stories was because the books he was working on before comics were love stories. He was doing right. like the covers for like these romance novels or like some of the comic books back then were just, you know, about, you know, here's Susie and she's got a crush on Johnny and they're in high school in the 50s together. And those were the books that, you know, <laughs> that he was getting paid to draw. Well, so. you know, you actually mentioned that to me about our comic is there's been parts where I've said, you know, I'm sorry that when I scripted it, it's 
two people talking to each other for so long and yeah. you're like you know coming out of this I've had to just draw faces right. and faces right. over and over again and it's been a really good learning mm-hmm. uh, technique for you so based on your experience and the same experience as somebody that you're thankful for I mean maybe our audience can learn from uh, that fact is like you can't just always draw the giant sword. You can't right, just right. always draw yeah. the laser blast from space. <laughs> when you're working in comic books, especially if you want to make any money and do something that sells, be ready to draw the human the human figure, but most the human face. And the human condition. Over and you know? over and over again. And if you can't convey emotion, you know, we've talked before about how Creating a comic book's like being in a band, and the artist is like the front man. That's the one that shouldn't, but gets a lot Crazy. of the credit for it. We are the actors, and Absolutely. that's what does is to Absolutely. convey the emotion through the characters we're drawing. And Johnny Romita would draw like, you know, like it's easy. Like if I said, okay, draw me a, you know, a dark, depressed angry character oh a lot of people can draw that they draw the eyebrows furrowed and the teeth they're gritting right. yeah that's the easy stuff but if i say hey draw me a character that just you know is that looks shy but you know kind of has a a crush on the character that's you know in the panel with it <laughs> right. oh, wow that takes you right out of your element of everything angry and snarl face you have to do that with the least amount of, of lines possible and such a such a subtlety to the face that you're drawing and it's like you know we're not used to emotions like you know love and uh you know envy um you know what's what's the word i'm thinking i'm not shy but like coy yeah you know those are things that if i threw that out there at a teenager in art class and said draw that they're gonna be like huh all my drawings are rage and anger and it's like that's not gonna get over the humanity of the character to the person well that's like i know i have a story i'm writing now and i remember a scene that i was kind of thinking like man that'd be interesting i really would like to see sam draw this scene but what happens in the scene is uh two people are in love and one person is really powerful politically and the other one is kind of their like proxy, you know, like yeah. they're uh, uh, the person that's supposed to make sure their political machine runs okay. But they're in love with each other. And what happens is the really strong political one has a stroke, and they're dealing with like in that moment, not knowing what the heck is going on. So they're experiencing worry, they're experiencing love, but they're also experiencing calculation, like in the mm-hmm. back of their mind, like okay you know this is i'm worried about this person i'm in love with this person but at the same time i'm thinking about damage control like yeah this could be permanent this could be temporary i don't know but i gotta start thinking of my actions i'm gonna take to make sure their power doesn't degrade as a result of this and it's like how do you draw that emotion that's a bunch of them that's an emotional stew going on so yeah as an artist i'll you know i'll look back to go man how would John Romita have handled this? Right. How would he have done this page? <laughs> well, that's lot. something to be like, thankful for then. It, Cheers. It, yeah. You know what I mean? Clean. Um, and, but to go back to John Romita and the love stories, you know, stuff, uh, a lot of people talk about the 1960s Spider-Man where you got the love triangle with him and Mary Jane Watson and Gwen Stacy and just uh, these characters and how emotional they were and how real they were and, like, the drama he was creating. It's like... None of that would have worked if he couldn't convey those emotions in those faces. Absolutely. And it, all of his background doing those love stories back in the 50s, like, 
paid off. I mean, he used all that when he's, you know, you think Spider-Man, superhero comic book, but no, people were into that stuff because they were emotionally invested in the drama of these characters. And like, man, if he couldn't convey those emotions we talked about, like, you know, love or, you know, cute well, or whatever. Well, you know, and what's interesting about that, you could be writing a hard-boiled detective story where it's a loner, you know, and mm-hmm. probably a lot of writers like to write that non-complicated loner, but you might want to convey those same emotions where the guy gets his gun spun across the floor and it almost goes off a ledge and you realize the expression on his face when he looks at that gun is like that gun is his lover. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. that, if he had lost yeah. that because he's been, that's been his only friend for so long. And you know, if you, it's easy to write something like that in your script is like, and when the gun spun across the floor, he gave it a look like he was about to lose his best friend. Right. That's easy for me to write. But now you got to draw that. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and I mean, like when we point out examples in our own book, and I don't want to give away any scenes, so I would recommend right now, if you haven't purchased your copy of our graphic novel, Hafu, go to showmecomics.com right now. It's only $9.99. It's 64 pages in full color. But go there, buy it right now, and then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Sam, could you pass me the cheddar, please? Thank you. In our story, you've got this young girl who's different. She gets bullied all the time. This girl puts up with a lot of crap. Now, if you're a typical comic book person and all you know how to draw is, you know, rage and anger... That's going to be your characters. Is That's how she deals with being bullied. She's angry all the time. She's moody. But that's not how we wanted our Akiko to come across. Akiko, because of growing up like this, winds up being kind of a distant person. She's almost like a right. robot in many ways emotionally with what she has to deal with with her father and the things going on with uh, other circumstances in her life and the, the people not accepting her. And it's like uh, a lot of the reactions you know, that you wanted from her in the story <laughs> – if I would have tried to convey anything else, she would have either come across as moody or irritating to the readers, or they just wouldn't have connected at all. Right. We want them to feel sorry for her. We want sympathy. We want them to care for this girl. And so, man, if I can't hit the facial expression of the eyebrows the right way, then you totally lose it. I think there's many scenes in the books where I had to do that. But to get back to John Romita and influences, um, it's funny because I keep talking about, you know, he was so great at conveying, like, you know, warm feelings and all this stuff. But ironically, John Romita actually came up with the original designs for Wolverine. <laughs> it was the complete opposite really? of everything we're talking about. Yeah, John Romita was doing a lot of, like, character costume Didn't designs. did Ween have some kind of input in he, he wrote it. He was the one that came up with the idea. But John Romita was the guy that actually came up with their first drawing of what Wolverine would look like, what his outfit would look yeah, like. Yeah, because I think Lynn <laughs> Ween originally wanted it to be... A mechanism in right. the gloves that right. had the claws right. come out. But and yeah, Johnny, totally was, Johnny was the one that designed that and came up with it. So you're talking about a guy that... Johnny, like you know him. For <laughs> but <laughs> like Wolverine's the opposite of everything. He is the crazy, you know, raged, you know, comic book. And because of him, a lot of the characters after that were, you know, these just crazy, snarling their brow, looking angry. But it's funny that the guy that actually came up with the, the design concept of Wolverine was known for the polar opposite of that. But, yeah, that's that, that's why John Romita would be uh, one of my first major influences. Well, now you've heard about the Grinch that stole Christmas, and now you've heard the Sam that stole the Thanksgiving episode. So <laughs> maybe we can move on to a, somebody that uh, I'm thankful for. And 
Uh, I mean, I want to do one more pass through all of us, but what I'm going to mention is uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Sure. Uh, I've mentioned before that I didn't really grow up seeking out comics. I enjoyed comics, but they were usually the ones that found me and not the ones that I found uh, through searching for them. Um, With the exception of, I grew up deeply immersed in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, I watched the TV show. I watched the movies. I mean, every birthday I was getting... I had the cassette tape of the Ninja Turtles coming out of their shell live concert tour, you know. I had the VHS, too, and Sam borrowed it. (laughs) I still have it. (laughs) Oh, and more Thanksgiving, you know. (laughs) Things coming out to make people testy at Thanksgiving, just like the tradition stands. But, uh, no, in all seriousness, I mean, I used to play Ninja Turtle action figures, like, every night, and just... That actually, I think that helped me as a writer to sit up there and I would like put three different characters over on one side and three different characters over on the other side, and then I would think, uh, why are they about to fight? You know, and I didn't know it, but I was practicing exercises of you know uh, coming up with conflicts and things like that. So um, that's not what I attribute to Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. What I attribute to them is just coming up with this concept that was able to make such an impression on me. And, uh, you know, I did go out and seek these toys, seek these movies, seek anything I could get my hands on those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I think one thing that was so fascinating about it is you had the martial arts aspect. Like, I could have gone to anything and got martial arts. Could have gone to Bruce Lee movies, you know. uh, I really did actually like Jean-Claude Van Damme at the time. He was really big, but... (laughs) Uh, never as big in my mind as uh, Ninja Turtles. I mean, they had a Karate Kid Nintendo game and a Ninja Turtles Nintendo game. And which one do you think I played more? I'm going to say the action figures. The, well, the Ninja Turtles video game, you know, because I just thought it was fascinating the juxtaposition of, and I wasn't obviously attributing those words <laughs> to my fascination at the time, <laughs> but the juxtaposition of the martial arts which was extremely you know like that's that's an acceptable thing in society you know you know that there's a martial arts genre of action but then it was so strange you know they're they're freaking walking talking turtles (laughs) so and they're fighting aliens they're fighting other mutants and i remember Uh, what made a huge impression on me as a kid and I think this was heavily influenced by the comics and what got me over there was I was playing with the toys I was getting all the you know TV show and everything and then my brother for my birthday bought me the role playing game which was called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness yeah and like a, like a pen and paper. Yeah, yeah, it was like a pen and paper role playing game. And I would. What is that? That's <laughs> one, my phone. Sorry, no. you can cut that out later. No, but I can't. <laughs> it was one of my buddies from Seattle t- texting me beer porn. Oh. <laughs> so hold on, I'm going to tell you what kind of beer they're drinking, and hopefully we can get sponsored um, on the show. Sam Adams New World. It is one of their more uh, high gravity brews, and he has it poured in a straight sided pint glass, and it has a soft amber color. And a very light, creamy head, and I'm sure it's delicious. I will text him in a moment and find out. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, so no, that and then that the artwork in that book was what was so fascinating because they would um, 
have the art of the different mutants and stuff like that. I think one mutant was like a, um, not a Wolverine. It was like a beaver or a badger or something like that. And then they would show uh, um, the the aliens that. I thought Krang from the cartoon was the only alien, yeah. but in the comic, it turns out they were a race of aliens that were all working together on Earth, and I found that out through the role-playing game book, because they're yeah. like, oh, and here's another enemy. The, I think they were the TCRI aliens, yeah. or it, it might have been TGRI. Yeah. I think that, they changed it for the second movie. Way more Peter Laird influence. Yeah, but suddenly I was like, wow, this thing that I like has depth. Yeah. to it and then i went back and watched the second turtles movie and i was you know found out that the secret of the ooze the secret of the ooze is actually came from mm. the aliens and the only reason i knew that was the abbreviation on the canister or the company that i found out with that so it was like you had martial arts which i loved but it got me into all that uh, those other aspects of science fiction uh fantasy because let's Let's face it, you know, the whole anthropomorphic thing, that's more of a fantasy element mm-hmm. than a than a sci-fi element. The aliens were sci-fi. The anthropomorphic elements were fantasy. And it just, it was really, uh, really broad and all-encompassing. And just that intellectual and creative property couldn't have influenced right. me uh, more. And the fact they had such longevity. I mean, oh, yeah. as you say They're that, I'm sitting going. there going, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are now... Probably almost, if not as popular as they were in the 1980s. The only reason we know that is because we have kids of that age. I mean, we had uh, my son's birthday party today, actually, and you got him a Ninja Turtles Mm -hmm. gift, which was a no-brainer. Yeah, (laughs) it's like Sam got him a Ninja Turtles, but so did four other people. Right, right. After playing Ninja Turtles at my house with my daughter all day, (laughs) after watching new episodes from the new cartoon, the, the the new series on Nickelodeon, it's just like. The 80s all over again with the new generation. Like, they've caught on. But it's the fact that you can take two different generations and say, okay, here's the same. This is the same product. Yeah. Just this time, they they embellished more of the cool stuff you talked about. They took more of that, you know, fantasy and sci-fi element and took away some of the goofiness of the original cartoon. But still has, like, the humor and the quirky stuff that made the Turtles teenagers and cool. And I actually, in my opinion, I think the new cartoon, the new series, is better than the old one. Oh, and it's the truer. old cartoon was really weird. And this like, one's truer to Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird's original idea of what the turtle should be. Which is why they're a huge... I mean, they took what essentially is a goofy idea and made it really interesting, really right. cool. Right. Um, it was almost a joke for them. And then they're like, what if the joke was serious? Right. And then it turned out to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. You know what I mean? What's kind of funny is, you know, you're, you're talking about the two guys, how they're, you know, both of them together created this, you know, empire. But I was reading some interviews and it's kind of like, from what I understand, as the Turtle comic took off and they started getting popular, started getting cartoons and toys, like right. around the time they really started to take off, Eastman and Laird hated each other. They got to where they couldn't <laughs> stand. Like they were like the comic book was being penciled and then e- like mailed to the next one to ink and they didn't want to be around each other. And uh, the way that the contracts were set up, Kevin Eastman wound up having more and more influence on like the TV shows and the movies. Right. And Peter Laird had more direction on like the comic books and other yeah, properties. Yeah, he just kind of stayed where he and, felt And what happened was 
instead of these two guys that were collaborating on the project and you got the cool part from both of them, one was getting more control of one part of the mm-hmm. one aspect of the property and the other one was getting more and you started seeing changes. What in was cool though is that gave it the breadth and depth, you know, that it had. Um, was because they were taking a little bit different directions. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to say about it, though, and this, again, huge influence, and I'm thankful for on Thanksgiving. Please pass the uh, peas with pearl onions. Thank you. Yum, yum. So Ninja Turtles really embedded Japanese culture in my psyche because I always thought when you boiled away the strangeness, the essence and the core of that story was Hamato Yoshi, you yeah. know, and... uh it it was just really interesting to know that at the end of the day, the biggest threat was still the criminal Japanese right. martial <laughs> artist, you know, that calls himself now the Shredder and the Foot Clan. And I know a lot of those ideas were hijacked from uh, Daredevil and things like that, but I, I think they took it to the next uh, level in storytelling mm-hmm. um, as far as it fit into that universe. But as a kid being super impressionable i mean up till then what kid would have known what a sigh was yeah what yeah. kid would have taken nunchucks seriously right what kid would have seen somebody fighting with a piece of wooden stick mm-hmm. you know called a bow mm-hmm. staff and yeah. the fact that you know i always refer to it as a bow and not a staff yeah. when i was growing up i <laughs> yes. mean they, these things i remember the original ninja turtle toys came with the uh I can't even remember the name of it now. It starts with a K, I think, but it was a Japanese sickle oh, yeah, that no. came with like a pointed end yeah. that came out one side for for thrusting, and the other side was you know for hooking and slashing. Yeah, um, the toys freaking came with that. They came with the uh, it was the awesome. glove dagger thing yes. that you held, and it was. I was just immersed in Japanese culture and martial arts via the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. As I grew a little bit older, because that seed was planted, anime was accessible. Yes. Suddenly. You know, I mean, it, it used to be an obscure section at Blockbuster, you know, but it grew and grew, and then you could get DVDs, and then you could find it on the internet. Our, our younger listeners might not appreciate the fact that it was not highly available then. Right, but right. So I sought it out because I became enthusiastic about ninja, right. Japanese culture, so I got hooked on anime, and if you want to fast forward and really see why I'm thankful for this today is our current project that people are enjoying, a lot of that's based on that Japanese right. tradition that right. I became tied to through Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. So I'm thankful for them. Cheers. Definitely. All right, Tim, next. You're up next. I'll tell you one of the things I'm thankful for is our sponsor, Audible.com. <laughs> and if you go to audibletrial.com slash showmecomics, you can start your 30-day treat your tree I cannot do this professionally. My tree frial. Your 30-day free trial and free audiobook. And our book that I'd like to recommend is by Brandon Sanderson, and it's called The Way of Kings, if you're a fantasy fan. Um, it's a good one to spend your first free credit on because the book is over a 1,000 pages. You're looking at over 40 hours of content. Read to you in the sultry voice of Michael Kramer, who is probably my favorite narrator. I am going through and reading the Wheel of Time series right now just because he narrates it and also because it's finished by Brandon Sanderson, who is my favorite author at the moment. Um, Additionally, at the time that we're recording this podcast, The Way of Kings is available on Kindle. So if you read the the e-book, it's only $1.99 to download. 
tell me about WhisperSync. So you can. So if you have both the audio and the Kindle book, you can take advantage of WhisperSync. So let's say you want to sit around and read from the comfort of your Kindle. You can go ahead and do that. But then, oh, time to go to work. I'm going to go ahead and plug my iPod or iPhone into the car. And what's this? It'll tell me where I left off in the book, and it will pick up the audiobook from that point, which is amazing. Astounding. So, audibletrial.com slash showmecomics. Start your free trial and get your free audiobook today. Plus, you help support the podcast. Which is very important. Oh, let's see. Well, if I had to say something else that I'm thankful for, I would have to suck up and say that I am thankful to Sam for exposing me to some of the greatest graphic novels that I've seen. Uh, Most notably, we had the uh, episode about The Dark Knight Returns, as I said before, and that one uh, I enjoyed. I don't remember a whole lot about it since it's been so long. But two that I always go back to is Spider-Man's Craven's Last Hunt and Batman's A Killing Joke, or The Killing Mm -hmm. Joke. Those are two of my favorites, and uh, those are two things since they were... So, they're not so old, but old enough that I probably wouldn't have found them without Sam's input. I probably wouldn't have read them. And especially Craven's Last Hunt. Um, Art-wise, story-wise, dialogue-wise, it's got some of the best dialogue and narration I think I've seen in the mm-hmm. comic. And overall, probably, if I had to say it, hands down, the best Spider-Man story I've yeah. ever read. Yeah, well, like we talked about earlier, it was it's another one of those books where it took a, a character that's iconic superhero you just see superhero stuff all the time typical comic book stuff that story was not typical comic book and the way that it ends usually our our villains don't get like a definitive ending Mm -hmm. craven got a definitive ending with that and the way that they set it up the way that the covers you know went along they led you enough that they didn't uh, mislead you but they also didn't tell the exact story and the way that that book ends, you go, that was not typical Spider-Man story at all. Well, the Craven ending is actually the issue before the last ending, because there's the the last the last <sighs> issue has to deal with oh, because he, he, he still has a vermin, he still has vermin and all that. Yes, it's it's an incredibly dark Spider-Man story. And what we talked earlier about, you know, whenever you introduce the, the you humanize the characters, like when you see, I that was like right after Peter Parker and Mary Jane got married. Uh, yeah, and he's been out. And Mary Jane, you're seeing from like her perspective, like is mm-hmm. Peter dead? And then when she's seeing Spider-Man in the news, and she's like, "That's not Peter." She can tell that that's not him under the outfit. And then you're getting like her reaction and how much that's messing her up. That he's gone, and it is it, that. That's an awesome Spider-Man story. Well, Craven's uh, from the Craven point of view. It's Craven's actually. <laughs> Sympathizable, yes. if that's a word. Yeah. If it's not, I'm just made Sympathetic. it. Sympathetic. Sympathetic yeah. is the yes. word that I was looking for. Uh-huh. Wordsmith. Because it's, he's like, kind of losing it, but there's like a reason for it, and it kind it humanizes the hunter in oh, a way yeah. that you haven't had before. Right. And now for the Killing Joke. What's your favorite part of that? Barbara Gordon getting shot or uh, Commissioner Gordon being naked? It's the <laughs> it's the commission. It <laughs> it's the uh, it's the attempt to drive Commissioner Gordon mad. Is actually my favorite part. <laughs> my favorite part of that is the very end when Joker tells the joke to Batman. Batman laugh. <laughs> the other thing that's I like the because uh, you have like this Joker origin story that's in it, but you don't know if it's actually true or not, right. and it's pretty much right. given that it's not true, right. but. 
It's a uh, that in art wise, I think it's just really well done. Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, speaking of art, you want to kick it over to the the, the second thing you're and last man, thing you're thankful for. Yeah, my my second thing I'm thankful for uh, would have to be Jim Lee. I know that uh, a lot of people because he's from St. Louis. You mark, <laughs> is he? A, a lot yeah, of people oh, yeah. uh, think uh, very unfavorably of Mister Lee because of the whole DC Comics and New Fifty Two, and many people are upset with what he's done while being primarily in control of that. But just as an artist, man, it Jim Lee's up there as one of the most influential guys to ever pick up a pencil. Like, I can talk about John Romita and Jack Kirby and how influential they were because there was not a lot of people before them, but Jim Lee. I mean, there are so many artists out there that you can look at and go, okay, they're trying to be Jim Lee. So as an art illiterate, explain to me why. Uh, at the time when, when, like, the Jim Lees and, like, the core image guys, when they first came along with, with, with Marvel and DC... Rob Liefeld, my Rob, hero, well, the Attitude Era of comics. Don't I'm thankful him. for people making fun of Rob Liefeld. I'm thankful there's a specific page where there's somebody that points out 50 of Rob Liefeld's worst mistakes, and it's the funniest thing I've ever read. I've so seen right that now, page, too, and Google that's it easy if you've not for, seen it. for some but, parents' basement syndrome guy to put together. <laughs> but to go back... We'll link to it on the in, show notes. In, in the 80s, comic book art was... Uh, it was pretty simple. You know, I said John Romita simplified things, but it was still nice artwork. That wasn't always the case with a lot of other artists up until the 80s. Did, so did that, comic art go from, like, cartoony to photorealistic to something in the 80s and then... Yeah, I wouldn't even say photorealistic and then something in the 80s. It was just, uh, they learned to ink better. And you had your few, you had Neil Adams... That you know that was awesome, but the rest of the guys were pretty much still just you know here's your character, not a very dynamic shot, and not a dynamic camera angle, and here's a storybook. And in the '80s, you had Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane and uh, Eric Larson and all these guys just hyper detail. But Jim Lee was different than that. He still had that element of uh, simplicity to what he drew. Like Todd McFarlane, it was dynamic. Todd McFarlane did insane amount of detail, and his characters were in these crazy poses. But it was very unrealistic. And then, yeah, like, there was a lot of that weren't physically yeah, possible. Yeah, like it looked cool. Like it was interesting to look at. But you're like, that's way cartoony. Which is fine because it's like one flavor. Like in an action movie, the guy that gets punched 53 times in the face and keeps coming. It's yeah, like, yeah. we know that's not yeah, realistic, yeah. but we enjoy it. Right. So. Tom McFarlane was just like, he is one of my top influences. In fact, had Tim not picked him for the other thing, I probably would have listed him here. So you're saying Jim Lee was different. Jim Lee had the detail. Jim Lee had the detail, the cross hatching. Like his rendering was way more dynamic than anything you saw, but he kept it real. Like when you looked at the figures, they didn't look like like a cartoon version of, you know, Batman. It just looked like. It was very like he dynamic. just focused the camera lens a little more and zoomed in, you know. And right, got and, a little and bit then just with, with the awesome detail with it. And then, like, the way that he drew women, like, when, when he was on X-Men, and it's like, I think that's what sold the book originally was the way he would draw Psylocke. Did and he Jean influence Grey the cartoon? Because that's the huge, X-Men I grew up with. Huge, yeah. huge influence on the cartoon. What Jim Lee and, you know, the writer, Chris Claremont, what they were doing with the X-Men at that time, that is exactly what the cartoon's based now on. Now I'm going to throw out the whole thing that it seems people are railing against these days is the, and again, another Kevin Smith line, the big boom, or big boobs, big guns era of comics. Yeah. 
was he involved in that a little bit? I, I don't think so. Um, not to the extremes of a Rob Liefeld where everything was exact. That's what I mean. He didn't exaggerate everything. His women, yeah. You could say not every woman on this earth is drop dead gorgeous. No, and he but... drew them drop dead gorgeous, but he didn't over accentuate. Like the breasts weren't, you know, so big that this character couldn't realistically walk oh, around. Oh right, with yeah, those. I gotcha. Well, but you could also say, well, every you know every male he drew had enormous muscles and were ripped. That's like what were I was going to say. Looking. There was the people rag on the whole women thing a lot, but. Uh... You no know, guy it, can never it, live up to that body type. Well, either. I was going to say it was basically like every character was a bodybuilder, and yeah. as a kid, yeah. I thought that was cool because right. they were supposed to be my heroes, you right. know, and they're they're bodybuilders, which it seems like nowadays people have gotten away from, right? Which is probably an over course correction, yeah, you know, from those days. But back when it, I was a kid. That's why I asked why it inspired yeah. the cartoon. I was eating it up, you right. know. I mean, right. great. You got Bishop. I can't even remember what Bishop's powers were, yeah. but he was ripped. Yeah, <laughs> and he had yeah, a mullet. The best way yeah. to put it is, he still kept his drawings interesting. Like books from the seventies or sixties or before, you you read those, you would reread them because you might want to see the story again. But you didn't really pay much. You didn't go back to look at a certain panel. Jim Lee was the type you could go back and you know the story front and back, but you still want to see that panel again. You right. still want to see the way that he did that character. And the other thing about Jim Lee. As, as I said with Eastman and Laird, is the longevity. To this day, Jim Lee, you know, only draws a handful of books a year. I mean, he's like damn near president of DC Comics, and he's doing all these other things. But if you still list it, who are the top five, you know, comic book artists today? He's still going to be at the top five, if not higher. Well, that's it brings up another topic where I was going to say that necessarily I didn't pick him as someone that I'm thankful for, but. Uh, that's impressed me about Jim Lee is how he's been able to adapt his career. Oh, sure. And that's impressive, and that's someone something that someone should think about yeah. um, because it reminds me of the sports player that's the hot young talent and is making all these crazy physical you know leaps to do these mm-hmm. plays, and then as they get older, they're more of the team builder you yeah. know they're the captain yeah. of the team they're saying i want you to do this and that right and then the next thing you know two years after their retirement they're the coach right and or the manager you know yeah. or something like that and i think that's kind of what jim lee has done in his career would you agree oh totally yeah i mean that's something admirable in yeah. my opinion i'm not yeah. even an artist and i think that's awesome totally you know, definitely to, i mean he did that with the whole studio like at wildstorm and all these guys he just there's so many. He learned call, how to run a business, right? But with we, Image and Wildstorm and all that. We, uh, you know, you know we, we call them clones. There are so many Jim Lee clones out there. To this day, there are still Jim Lee clones, and uh, to me, that that says a lot. All right. Well, enough of us uh, paying homage to Mr. Lee. The last thing that, or the last influence slash inspiration that I want to talk about from a writer's standpoint and that I'm thankful for on this Thanksgiving, in fact, I think it's dessert time. You guys having pecan or a pumpkin pie? Both. Uh, I'm taking a slice of each. Pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving? (laughs) Now that's living. But moving on uh, to who I'm thankful for is, this is outside the realm of comics. Like I said, I came to comics late. Um, I learned slash got inspired slash got influenced by other mediums, whether it was film or written. There's a billion novelists I could list right here. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to to delve into that realm. Instead, I'm going to talk about film. 
uh, Quentin Tarantino, huge influence on me. Yeah. Um, probably not for the reasons that a lot of people would think of. The reason Quentin Tarantino inspires me and is an influence is his dialogue. I really think he's one of the the kings of dialogue, not just as in what people say, but the storytelling that's happening through what they're saying and and also just how it creates pacing and tension and things like that. Um, I've actually sat down and tried to study Quentin Tarantino's dialogue. And one of the things I've noticed is that they're saying things through their dialogue, which is not the topic they're talking about. I'll get to that with an example. Okay. Reservoir Dogs, opening scene. They're all in a cafe. And they talk about basically two main subjects. They talk about uh, a Madonna song. And they also talk about tipping in a restaurant. Neither one of those things have to deal with a heist, which is the subject of the entire movie, which is the reason everyone is in that cafe, which is the reason they know each other. They go through that whole opening scene, which is pretty long and super dialogue heavy. There's no action. It's just a camera that's turning around, you know, going from person's face to person's face who's talking. And they are talking about these two subjects that have nothing to do with the heist, but we get everyone's character out of that. When we fast forward later in the movie to the actual action and the heist, we already know their underlying character and when they start to react to those you know boom michael bay moments we're not surprised at how they're acting as a character so for example um we've got uh mr pink who is the neurotic guy who's against tipping and he just you know is always like no 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 you know i i don't see it that way and he's talking about the Madonna song, like that's not what the Madonna song's about. And he's talking about tipping, tipping's for the birds, he <laughs> says, you know. And let me tell you why, because we're all getting fooled, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to after the heist goes wrong, Mr. Pink's the first guy that starts saying something was rotten there. You know, something went wrong in that heist. There, There's a rat. I smell a rat. And we, as an audience, are like, we're very invested in what he has to say. It doesn't come out of left field because he already said in the Madonna song, no, 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 I smell a rat. Tipping, I smell a rat. And he was he made a very convincing argument in both points. So once we get to the heist, he's like, I'm convinced there is a rat. And guess what? In the story, there is, and that's foreshadowing, and that's good writing. And he did not tell us. He showed it through dialogue. And that's mm-hmm. a master at yeah. work right there. That's really important. Yeah. You can shift to other characters. Like you got uh, Mr. Orange. He's the undercover cop. Super quiet in this conversation about Madonna and tipping and stuff like that. And when he's finally called upon, and he's always called upon to give his dialogue. You know, it's like he's not just interjecting in the conversation. So it's like. You're awfully quiet. You know, what do you think about this? They don't say those specific words. But when he does speak the very few times, he just makes a very neutral kind of softball argument like, I agree with him, you know. Yeah, 
I agree with him. You know, very mm-hmm. simplistic. You know, he doesn't offer a lot. And so it sets up that expectation. It was like, mm, he's kind of a yes man. You know, there's not much going on there. So when you find out he's an undercover cop, it's like, boom, it just hits in place. Like, oh, no wonder he's trying to draw the least amount of attention to himself. So all of this character and all of this story is coming out. But what really influenced me is what they're talking about is not the heist. You know what I mean? Because if they're talking about the heist, it's like, okay, this is a heist movie. The writer is telling me about the heist. That's boring. You know what I mean? Instead, it's like, whoa, these guys are... I don't know what's going on. You know, I heard and I saw from the movie trailer that this was like a crime movie. These guys aren't talking about crime. They're talking about something I might be talking about. You know, I might talk about, I know myself as a cheapskate, I've talked about stiffing the waitress multiple times. Hopefully I didn't tune you out of the podcast. (laughs) I just left a tip today at my son's birthday party. It was awesome. But uh, just earlier, Jordan was telling me to get energy drinks out of the fountain because it's cheaper than the can. I'll tell you a story about when I made very little money. I used to go to a restaurant and I would order a hamburger. (laughs) And then I would say, I've told this so many times because I knew I would order hamburger and fries. And because I knew they didn't charge for, you know, extra, I would say, can you give me a hamburger and fries? But I would like extra lettuce and extra tomatoes on the side and could I also get a side of ranch to dip my fries in so they'd bring all that out and I would dump the extra ranch on top of the lettuce and tomato and bam free salad (laughs) (laughs) that tells you how cheap I am but no in all seriousness that might be a conversation that we would have with our friends but Quentin Tarantino shows us that make a conversation that's interesting in and of itself but now show us character through it. And I think that's really, I mean, that really inspired me and really influenced me. It goes back to a George Carlin quote in one of his stand-up routines when he talked about uh, doing an impression of Ed Sullivan. Hmm. Because Ed Sullivan used to, you know, introduce all these acts on his show, and he's like, now here on our show, you know, up next, blah, 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 blah. I'm not doing an Ed Sullivan impression. But what George Carlin said was, it's not the quality of your voice that matters. You know, it's not how much you sound like Ed Sullivan that's going to interest the audience or that convince them that you're doing a good expression mm-hmm. or impression. It's what you're introducing. Right. He's like, if you can make what you're introducing entertaining, you know, it's like, now we've, next here on our show, we have monkeys with waffle irons who are making the most extraordinary poop pancakes that you've ever experienced in your life. People are like, that's crazy, you know, and suddenly they're invested in listening to what this fake Ed Sullivan is saying, but they're probably going to leave and say, that was a that was a great Ed Sullivan impression. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was terrible. <laughs> the but Ness monster. It was how he entertained you with what he was saying as Ed Sullivan that got you to do it. And when George Carlin said that, it really stuck with me. And you can see that in Quentin Tarantino. I mean, Pulp Fiction. They're talking about milkshakes. You know, right. they're talking about uh, corny jokes, things like that. They're talking about a really good scene is where uh, through Bruce Willis. 
and the lady that's in in his life, she starts talking about how pot bellies are sexy, you know, mm-hmm. not to look at but to feel a big round belly and she starts talking about the subject matter and it's like it's super interesting and the mm-hmm. next thing you know at the end of that discussion you're thinking she really loves him she never said anything about loving him yeah you know anything like that but you're invested because she has you know shared this secret of her herself with him and it just gets you super invested in those mm-hmm. characters so i would author or offer an author the advice of why i'm thankful quentin tarantino is he has proved that it's more of how interesting you can make what the people are saying does not have to be plot driven it just has to be interesting in and of itself how the voices speak during that is what drives the character right so just like uh, Ed Sullivan is not going to come out and be bored with an act. He's going to be excited about every single act he has, even if it's monkeys making poo pancakes. <laughs> and that's what gives Ed Sullivan his character, is his excitement. And that's why when you leave, you think that was a good Ed Sullivan impression. Um, so you can have a completely separate, interesting conversation as long as you express it through the voice of the character You've done an amazing job, like Which, Mr. Tarantino. There's a scene in our uh, in our book, Hafu, that Jordan does this incredibly well, and I would like to point out that in the scene, our character, Akiko, is having a conversation with an object that is not human. She's having right. a conversation with something that cannot talk back to her, but it's very interesting. It gets across the point. It gets across the story, and I recommend you go to showmecomics.com right now Pick up a copy of our book. It's 64 pages in full color. It's only $9.99 plus shipping and handling. So you can see that scene and numerous others to get across the point of some of the things that we've talked about tonight. And we will be very thankful for that, and we will drink to you. So with that said, on behalf of Sam Jordan and myself, we're Show Me Comics thanking you for your creative endeavors. And we would offer you a big thanks if you would visit our website where you can listen to the podcast, read author's blog, and also check out artwork and order our book for nine ninety nine at showmecomics.com, which is with a CS because we know how to... Oh, there's the tryptophan. We know how to spell. And add us on your social media. If you're on Facebook, like us at facebook.com slash novel, And tweet us your comments, your questions, your suggestions. At Show Me Comics on Twitter. Happy Thanksgiving!